Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, when he said, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. And Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now. In Christ's good name we pray. Amen. So last week, listening to to Ben sort of wrap up chapter 2, a thought came to my mind as he was preaching. I was probably more distracted by my thought. Um, And it was this picture of if Matthew was a movie, um, I I think we would be sort of transitioning as we go into chapter 3, thinking about how movies start. I'm not a movie maker by trade. I've never made any movie successfully. Um, but I've watched a lot of movies. And so I've seen how they kind of start. One of the movies that, that sort of comes to my mind is Star Wars. Um, I don't know how they all start, but I think of that yellow writing, you know, that's sort of flat, that's sort of walking itself out on the page. And you can, you can read what's being said, and then it goes to darkness, and then the story sort of unfolds. Some movies, it's sort of like they fly in over the sky, and as you're sort of you're landing into the story of what they're about to start, a narrator sort of uh, frames what's going on, what was happening in those days, what was the situation. And so I believe that if Matthew was a movie, or if I was to make a movie from Matthew, the first two chapters, I think, would be that sort of the introduction, uh, the narrator sort of laying the framework about what was to come. And then as the narration part was over, as I got into chapter 3, we would basically be front row with John the Baptist in the Jordan Jordan River, basically proclaiming repentance for the kingdom of God, and we would be entering into the story. Everything's sort of developing. Matthew's latest framework, he's showed us clearly who Jesus is, how he fulfilled all of the prophecies. He's, he's put Old Testament scripture to affirm these claims that he's making. And as we get into chapter 3, verse 1, we read, Now in those days John the Baptist came. So we know that John the Baptist, he has not been introduced in Matthew. I've, I struggled with chapter 3, how to break it up. Do we... Do we cover the whole chapter 3? Uh, there's, there's three basic sections that, that fit together. In today's section, there's, there's the crowds that are dealt with by John the Baptist. Then there's the second section, starting in verse 7, where the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious ones, are confronted by John. And then finally, in the third section, in chapter, verses 12 or 13 through 17, we see Jesus come on scene. He begins his earthly ministry. He's baptized by John the Baptist. And from there, he goes into the wilderness to be tempted. And and our our whole storyline of Jesus begins. I'd been going back and forth. Maybe I'll do the whole thing. Maybe I'll cut it in half. And then about Tuesday or Wednesday, I'm like, "Ah, I'll just just do the six verses. We'll cover the first part. Um, 
First rule of public speaking is be brief, brother, be brief, which I don't follow that often. And so I think that if we, instead of trying to rush through this whole story to sort of focus, I'm compelled to, to take our time with John. Matthew doesn't spend a whole lot of time early on introducing him. But when we get to chapter 11, if we were to look at Matthew, or Luke chapter 7, when Jesus speaks about John the Baptist, Jesus says of all men ever born in human history, John the Baptist is the greatest man ever to walk and live on this earth. And so because of that, I felt like it would be good for us to sort of slow down and look at him. What do we know about him? Um, John the Baptist in Luke is introduced with greater detail. If you want to go to Luke chapter 1, I warned you, keep your place in Luke. We're going to go back and forth between Matthew and Luke chapter 1 and 3 on with great frequency today. Uh, in the beginning of Luke, the very first thing that Luke starts with after his introduction is verse 5. Uh, from verses 5 through about 20 or 21 or so, it's the story of Zacharias, this priest, uh, fulfilling his religious duty. He, he drew a lot. It was a once-in-a-lifetime experience to go into the holiest of holies to do the rituals. He draws this lot and he goes in at the end it's i mean not at the end of his life but he was he was an older man we know that he and his wife were beyond childbearing years as he's in the temple fulfilling his priestly duty an angel appears to him and says don't be afraid uh, he says your prayer has been answered and we'll see or we see that as he responds the prayer that he was talking about was that he and his wife had prayed for a child for years and years and years, and the prayer was never answered. But now, beyond their childbearing years, the angel says, you will have a son. The angel points to Malachi chapter 3 and 4 and says, your son will fulfill this prophecy, Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets to speak, saying that a forerunner will come to pave the way for me to prepare the hearts of people. In verse 16 of Luke chapter 1, the angel tells Zacharias the, the purpose of John the Baptist's earthly ministry, his life calling. We're told that he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him, that's Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children, quoting from the very last line of the Old Testament, the last words that God has spoken for 400 years leading up to this point, and to the disobedient attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What a beautiful life calling that Zacharias is told that he's going to have a son, and the whole purpose of his son's life was to prepare people to return to God, to, to get right with God, to make mends. It's, it really is a beautiful picture. Um, going back to Matthew, who doesn't introduce John at all, other than in those days John the Baptist came. He kicks off um, probably close to 30 years old. We know he was six months older than Jesus. Jesus started his earthly ministry around 30 years old. And so we see in those days, what days are these? The previous verse, chapters and verses are not 
um, inspired by God. Uh, a French guy in the 1500s added them for our ease to navigate the, the Bible. I'm very thankful for him. But if we read before this, in verse 23 of chapter 2, it says, And came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now in those days. And if we get wooden stick literal, now in those days, now we have this picture that John the Baptist is now preaching at the Jordan River. Um, Does this mean that John the Baptist was about I don't know, five, six, seven years old doing this? Well, I don't think that's the case. Um, I, most sort of hold that when he says in those days, he's talking about the whole window that Jesus sort of grew up in Nazareth, that he was up there sort of in obscurity. Um, there were a couple incidences that we know about. Um, one when he was about 12 or so um, for the feast in Jerusalem. He, his parents all leave, but he's stuck at the temple uh, challenging the religious leaders. But really, his childhood's not mentioned that much other than he was growing and maturing as a young man. And, John, and Matthew here sort of fast forwards about 20 or 30 years, probably 25 years or so to our story. Luke, on the other hand, if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 3, Luke is very specific. Because of Luke's historical work, his documentation... We, some 2,000 years later, we can narrow down pretty closely that we know that Jesus' earthly ministry, John the Baptist's season of ministry at the Jordan River, happened about A.D. 28. Now look what Luke says in chapter 3, verse 1. There's a bunch of hard names. He says, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, We know that the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, his earthly reign in this area, started in August of A.D. 28, and it went through August of A.D. 29. Now, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, he doesn't stop there. He expands. He says, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region Iteria and Treconitus and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene. Texas, apparently. No, it's not Texas. It is. <clears throat> In the high priesthood, then he goes to the religious leaders. He says, during this time, the high priest at the time, it was Ananias and Sapphira, or Caiaphas. The word of God came to John son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And so Luke dates this very clearly. You could head back to Matthew chapter 3. So we know in these days, as John the Baptist comes in, it's about A.D. 28, most of us don't, don't really care about history that much. Some of us really do. The thing that I find most fascinating and most important about the gospel story about Christ is that this isn't just some fairy tale that, that people made up and they were just sort of ignorant back then and it just sort of, because of their ignorance, it was able to spread like wildfire. This is rooted in history, that, that the history of John the Baptist, the history of Jesus, he transformed history. These were smart, wise people and they documented it clearly what happened. 
This isn't something that was just made up. And during this time, John the Baptist comes on to scene and we read that he was preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So we get a little bit of a location. Um, I read wilderness. My childhood growing up in Lake Tahoe area uh, for about six years there, when I read the, world, the word wilderness, I think pine trees, snow, uh, fresh uh, mountain stream waters with trout in them, just beautiful. Well, that's not what wilderness looked like at all. Um, before we look at the picture, if we can go to the next slide to get a little uh, geographical orientation, these big um, red circles, uh, the re- this red circle is the area of Judea. At the very bottom here, you can see the Dead Sea. Just to the west of the Dead Sea, you can see Jerusalem up on a hill. Um, John was raised and grew up in this region. Some have suggested right here on the very northwest corner of the Dead Sea, there's a, a little town, well, the town, call it town, there's a spot called Qumran. If you go to Israel, you will see this spot. This is where they dis- discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was a group of, I believe, the Essenes. They were sort of a radical group that isolated themselves from the rest of the world. They were trying to preserve the Word of God and to live faithfully. Um, thankfully, because of them, we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, with, which authenticated the accuracy of uh, most of the Old Testament that we have today. So in all of this region, he was preaching in this region. By the, the, by the end here, it says that he would, went to the Jordan River, which flows from north to south, and he began his ministry of baptizing. So likely somewhere in this area, we'll see that during his ministry that people from all over Israel flooded to him. We, we have to remove the idea in our minds that there were I don't know, 50, 100 people. There were thousands of people responding. People from all over Israel were coming to investigate who this man was. The word went out and people were flooding to him uh, to see who he was and what his message was. Uh, this area up here is up by the South Sea of Galilee, up in the mountain region. This, that red circle up, up to the north is Nazareth. Uh, this is during those days. This is where Jesus found himself now for those of you like me who when you read the word wilderness and think pine trees and snow and trout and beauty um, this next picture will show us what it looks like Um, this is from Qumran looking at the Dead Sea here this is the northern section of the Dead Sea it is desert dry miserable hardy land this was not a land that was easy to survive in They had nomadic people there. This is when David, when he fled from King Saul, he went down there because of the harshness of the land. It would have been very difficult uh, to sustain. You you needed, I don't know if training is the right word, but you needed a a background in how to survive in the desert. Um, This was a rough, rugged place. And this is where John the Baptist, this is where he called home. This is where his ministry happened in this rugged location. Very different from the northern part of Israel uh, with the fresh water. That, that lake in the background, as beautiful as it is, it is, um, it is worthless unless you like floating because it's so buoyant or if you like facial scrubs, which I don't like either one of those, so it's a useless lake to me. Um, you can't fish in it because it's, there's, there's nothing in it. It kills everything. Um, so we can go to the previous slide. Okay. So now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching, 
proclaiming. Some translations say saying or speaking. Preaching proclamation carries the, the, the uh, I think, the best connotation because this is heralding. He is, is, he's not dialoguing with people. He's literally preaching at them. His message wasn't exactly the most seeker-friendly or politically correct message um, by our standards. His message was simply, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He would challenge people for their sins. As we unfold the gospels, we'll see that he challenged people in high places. He challenged the religious leaders. He he challenged people specifically over sins they were in, verbally telling them what their sins were in front of everybody. I imagine this to be a very humiliating time. It's a, this message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? Like, How am I to respond? What is repentance? I have a couple friends who take this word very seriously. Both of my friends came from more of a religious background, uh, very dogmatic about works, and uh, that if you wanted to be right with God, you had to, uh, your life had to actually reflect certain things before God would um, hear you or deal with you if you wanted to have a relationship with them. And because of their sort of their scarring, I would say, in that background, they get very peculiar when people start talking about the issue of repentance or to repent. Um, if I'm ever in a dialogue with them about repent, I have to very clearly articulate grace to them to make sure that they understand that I'm not going on a rabbit trail of works. But they're people that I enjoy, and I they're people that I like sort of like pulling out my sword and sort of you know sparring with them on theological issues. And so when I came across this, I'm like, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Well, here we go. The word is right there. And I started, I'm like, I wonder how many times Matthew uses this word repent. Like, how often is this used? So I did a quick little word study on the word repent. I was sort of surprised. I don't know in your mind if you think, okay, Matthew's a, a book with 28 chapters. Um, how many times do you think this word is used? I didn't do, I'm not going to call you guys out loud, but just for your mind. No, I said 28 chapters. I, maybe I go conservative, like, you know, like guessing jelly beans in the jar, except I don't get to see the jar or the jelly beans. I'm thinking 15, 20 times would be a fair guesstimate on how many times the word repents would be in Matthew. To my surprise, this word is only found five times in the whole um, Gospel of Matthew. That's not taking like repentance. I missed that one. I got to kind of go back and check that variance of a different of, of that word. But repent is only used five times. It's used here in Matthew 3, 2 to describe um, John the Baptist's message of his ministry. Then in 4.17, when Jesus is introduced, his ministry is in, introduced. That in, from that time, Jesus began to, to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then it's virtually silence. Now I said five, there's three more right away. The three others are used all together in Matthew 11.20, 11.21, and then 12.41. These three instances are used by Jesus, or, the, or Matthew and Jesus both sort of use them. But the context is, is 
that Jesus began to condemn the cities who witnessed the miracles that Jesus performed and still did not respond in repentance. And he basically says, because they didn't repent and they've seen the miracles, he began to condemn these cities. And he says, at the end of this world, on that day when judgment comes, the people of Nineveh, who were a wicked, evil people, they responded in repentance when Jonah came and proclaimed that God's wrath was coming and they needed to repent. And the whole city, if we go back to that story, they all repented. They threw dirt in their hair. They tore their clothes. They had a time of fasting to where even the animals were fasting. And Jesus says, in that day, the people of Nineveh, because, of their, because they repented, they're going to testify against you at judgment. But really, there's silence. And, the, and when Jesus is introduced... This is a little sidebar, so if you're, if you're interested, you can keep paying attention. If not, you can kind of doze off or whatever. Because we're going we're gonna to cover it later. But in Matthew 4.17, he says, From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repentance for the kingdom is near. If we continue through the story of Matthew, which we will, eventually we're going to come to chapter 16. And in chapter 16, they, they find themselves at Caesarea Philippi, this uh, a hotbed for all of the different religions and beliefs, it was sort of the, the, the key location. Um, there were um, all sorts of idolatry up on the cliff. If you make the trip to Israel, you will, you will see this location. And during that spot, Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? So they say, well, some say you're Elijah. Some say this, some say that. And eventually Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter boldly opens his mouth and he He nails the answer correctly. He says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And Jesus says, you're correct. And upon that proclamation, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Right after that, well, Peter has a little hiccup. He scolds Jesus, which is never good to do. We get through the scolding. And then in 1621, this phrase appears again for the second time. From that time... Jesus began telling them about his death, burial, and resurrection. So the focus, and I wish I had more answers, but we're going to discover this going through Matthew. I, I, I think Matthew has a, one of his main emphasis is showing that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. And repentance, I do think, leads to sort of belief. Um, Lunida, which is a word study, It says this concerning repentance found here. It says, John's message called for repentance from sin. He thus anticipated the Messiah's mission as described in 121. Repentance in Greek is traditionally implied a change of mind or attitude. But under Old Testament influence, it took on the sense of change of action as well. This combination means that John was asking his hearers to change their way their way of life as a result of complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. Henry Ironside, a preacher from like I think the early 1900s, maybe into the 1800s, he says this about repentance in John's message. He says, John's message was a call to self-judgment. He urged the people to take sides with God against themselves, which I think kind of clearly summarizes it. So, 
John the Baptist is challenging the people for their sins to repent from their sins, that judgment is coming, that they need to turn. And, and I believe that re- repentance at its core is this sort of agreeing in your mind with God. God says sin is wrong. Sin requires judgment. We in our minds say, yes, I agree. I stand condemned for my sin because God is holy. I do believe that belief leads, if, if you think differently, you'll, you'll behave differently. And so here, John the Baptist is challenging them. And in this section, the first part, these are people who are responding. Um, Matthew, trying to authenticate John the Baptist from the Old Testament scriptures, he sort of pauses. He says in verse 2 what his message is, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Then in verse 3, he's going to authenticate that from Scripture. And so he says, quoting from Isaiah, For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. It was this, this picture of preparing the road for royalty. If royalty is going to come through, they're going to, they're going to patch the potholes. They're going to... Uh, provide safety and security so that when the king or president or whoever passes through, that all of the arrangements are made so that they can get through safely, securely, and quickly. Um, The the only time I've really sort of come close to a a presidential sort of um, pre-arrangement was in Israel when we went as a church. We were there, and I believe the pre- the president of the United States was on his way to Israel like two weeks after we, I think we left, and then he came two weeks later. And in Jerusalem, it was like a nightmare getting around. I remember there were some spots, and our tour guide's like, hey, you see all those American flags? Those aren't normally there. But your president is coming, and we're, we're getting ready for the president of the United States to come to Jerusalem. And so security is making all of the arrangements, doing all of the things so that it's safe and secure and quick for him to get through. And so in looking at this, he's talking in terms. Isaiah is speaking very practically, like if this was a road that we would either clear the road, we would fix the potholes, we would make it so that they're able to get through. But in this context, he's not talking about that there's literal roads to fix. He's speaking in spiritual terms. That how do we as individuals, if we are to come in contact with the king, how do we make ready the way of the Lord? And I think this goes back to his message, this idea of repentance, this idea of humbling ourselves before him. Um, in a certain sense, if we all have potholes in our heart. We have hardness in our heart. And there's sort of the, the cultivating of the soil of our heart that we could respond to the king. I'm so thankful in my own life that God is a God who desires to cultivate our hearts so that we can encounter him. That we're convicted of our sin that, that our sin can lead us to sort of a, a, a miserable place that we would reach out for him. Uh, this week, I was on a, I often go on ride-alongs on a weekly basis. And on Tuesday, I was on riding along with an officer. 
and a radio call came out. And when I heard the radio call, I look at the officer and I said, we have got to go to that call. And he's like, what? Are you t- what? I'm like, did you not hear what was said? He's like, well, I wasn't really paying attention. They didn't, they didn't dispatch me. I'm like, you're going. And I'm like, look at it. Read on the CAD. And it said that this young man called the police on himself, that he'd had this vision from God, that he'd seen, um, it was some sort of religious, sort of weird, whatever it was, that the dispatcher is trying to write into the cat about what this guy saw and how he has a word of God that he's going to cast judgment on the officers sort of thing. And the officers are supposed to respond to it. And then they said his name, and his last name happened to be Mormon. And I'm like, dude, it's, his name's Mormon. He had a vision from God. He wants to cast judgment on you. We got to go. And so he's like, man, this is a call we would try to avoid. I'm like, you're going. And so we show up at this call, and it's this young kid, 1920, he was an adult, and he begins sharing this vision that he'd had. And I just sort of sat in the sidelines just watching the officer I was with as a, as a, as a believer. And so he's trying to, to speak to this young man and from, a, from a Christian perspective, trying to help him out. But, but this kid obviously had some serious mental um, problems. And from what I gather, he'd done drugs a few years ago and exposed some sort of mental issue, and then he was put on medication. But he stopped taking the medication without doctor's orders, and it sort of sent him down this bad road. But I could tell by the things he was saying that, that he had to grow up in church, that he had, by, it was like he had this, this bag filled with Bible information, but 20% of what he said, it was sort of spitting out like Bible stuff, but just in a weird way. But the officer that was talking to him didn't have enough of a foundation in the scriptures to know which was the weird stuff and which was the correct stuff. And so he stood very insecure trying to, to reason with this kid. I finally saw his mom show up. I go talk to the mom. I said, are you guys church-going people? And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, we're church. We, he's been in church his whole life. And she explained the background, the backdrop to everything that had happened. And while I was talking with her, like four officers sort of approach and they say, ma'am, we're trying to do everything that we can do. Like we don't want to arrest him. Like we don't, like clearly there's stuff going on. We, we do not want to arrest him. But if he doesn't go with you, we're going to have to arrest him. And so I'm kind of going, oh, this is, this is serious because we've sort of used up the amount of time that they had, that they had to give to this young man before they would have to sort of speed things up. And I'm like, well, why are you guys over here? Why, why is that the officer I'm with over there by himself? And they're like, well, I guess this kid has respect for him. He, they think he's a religious man and he's willing to talk with him. So he actually kicked us out and we're giving this officer a chance to deal with him. And I'm like, okay, I'll go over there and intervene. And I sat with the kid and I say, listen, you need, like, I'm like, I'm a pastor. I can see your heart. We don't want you to make the choice where you go to, to, to jail. And, and please go. And he finally like, came around. And I think the whole point of all of this, uh, during the first verse, I was like, what are you, where are you going with this? Is the more I do ride-alongs, the, and I see the sort of discretion of officers and how much mercy is given in a, in a certain case. Like at one point, this kid got so angry because he disclosed drug use and alcohol and all of these things he wasn't supposed to be doing. 
and he wanted the authority of God to, to bring its wrath upon him. And they said, well, we have discretion, and we don't think that's the best route, but if you choose that route, we're going to have to do this. And so when I saw the mercifulness of these officers, even though they have the authority and they have the right to take this young man into custody, what they wanted, what was best for him, and that was to go with his mom. And I couldn't help but to see this picture of God, that God is holy, God is just. Our sin deserves his wrath, and yet he is so merciful to us that in every case, when God's wrath is talked, there's this sort of this plea for you to take the offer that God is giving to respond in taking his mercy, to walk with him, allow him to forgive you, allow him to change you. And so as the Messiah is about to walk on scene, John the Baptist, who appears in every gospel, is the very first one calling and challenging those that hear his words or witness to him that we would get our hearts right, that we would pave the way, that we would humble ourselves before God that we would make our hearts right or to position our hearts in a way so that we would respond correctly when the Messiah comes. Now he says in verse 4, we're going to get a description of who John the Baptist was, what he looked like. It says, Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust with wild honey. It's easy to read through this. This is a picture of a wild-eyed man. In Luke chapter 1, when the angel was speaking with Zacharias, the angel said that your child will be a Nazarite. Or he didn't yesterday use those words, but he said the three things that, that you would do according to number 6 for the Nazarite vow. You wouldn't take any wine or grape juice. You wouldn't cut your hair. You, would, you couldn't touch dead bodies which 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 man, you're sort of like a vegetarian so he's so we see this description that he's this guy wearing camel hair which is sort of crusty nasty thick coarse type hair with a leather belt and he's eating locust and wild honey which is which would have been the diet of the poorest of poor people now what he doesn't say is he doesn't necessarily address his hair, but we know that he, he was given the Nazarite vow from early childhood, which means his hair never cut. Was, his hair was never cut. So I have in my mind some like sort of reggae-looking guy with dreadlocks. I mean, I can't imagine 30 years of no, not having your hair cut ever. I mean, I've seen guys with long hair, and it's like five years, but 30 years is a massive amount of hair. And so this picture of him he stood out. He was distinct from his culture, which, which was the whole purpose of the Nazarite vow, that you set yourself apart for the purposes of God. And so here this guy is. He's in the, the Jordan River. He's challenging people for, for their sins. People are getting baptized. They're responding. We see in verse 5, Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, the whole region, the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. And so the people respond, they're coming. I want us to close in Luke chapter 3. <clears throat> in Luke chapter 3, Luke, it, Luke sort of paints more of this picture about 
Matthew just kind of says they were, he was challenging their sins. They were responding. They were confessing their sins. Um, lives were being changed. John was growing in popularity. He had a huge following. The people questioned, was he the Messiah or was there another? But, but he, he had a growing ministry. He had a ton of influence. And as we come to Luke chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, there's a little expansion over, do we know anything more about how he guided people? And in Luke 10 through 14, three groups are addressed. We see there are the crowds, the general population that went to him. We see tax collectors who were, who were despised and hated by their culture. They were if you were Jewish, which a lot of them were, you were a traitor. And then there were soldiers who were likely Roman citizens enforcing the law. That, that non-Jews are responding to John. And so in verse 10, the crowds were questioning him, saying, the picture is that they've been baptized. They're there. We've been baptized. We've confessed our sins. We've repented. Then what shall we do? And John responds to them in verse 11. And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. It, it's the, the, the basic principle. The greatest command, Jesus in John 13, 34 says, a new command I give you, basically to love one another as I have loved you. And it's this picture of, okay, you've repented, you've been baptized, you've responded, now what? Well, now love your neighbors, share. If you have food and resources and your neighbor doesn't, demonstrate your love by actually caring for one another. Then the tax collectors. And some ta tax collectors came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And I imagine that the people that were listening to the tax collectors asking John, well, what shall we do? I imagine everybody else, we're getting close to tax season, the it's year end. I could just hear everybody in their heart saying, tell them to quit. Tell them to quit. You can't be a you can't You can't be right with God and take people's money. Just walk away from your profession. Just go away. Just quit. But all he says to them is collect no more than what you've been ordered to take. That, that you've been authorized to take a certain amount and the culture had sort of, un, uh, sort of become that, that nobody really knew what they were ordered to take and anything in excess of what they were ordered to take, they sort of pocketed for themselves. As we meet Matthew more and more, Jesus will be criticized for hanging out with the sinners, but we'll see that when Matthew invited Jesus over with all his buddies, he had a pretty big house. And how did he get his big house? Well, he probably got his big house because he was taking a lot of money from tax collecting. Then the third group, the soldiers, were questioning him. And what about us? What shall we do? We've repented. We've confessed our sins. We want to live for God. What do we do now? This verse always makes me laugh because I used this verse in my master's thesis. And when I was defending it, Dealing with the Christian and being in the military or law enforcement, how did it all fit? The guy who was, well, if you're defending something, it's an unpleasant situation. So I was being sort of torn apart by this guy. And I laughed in the middle of defending my thesis when the guy asked me, do you really think this applies to cops and military people today? This is, this is a whole nother time. And I literally, I accidentally laughed 
and said, are you joking? Do you not know any cops or military people? Look what John the Baptist says. This is as practical today for those who are in authority for any government. Well, what about us? He says, don't take money from anyone by force. I think that's a real temptation, especially when we go to Mexico. <laughs> you get pulled over. <laughs> Sir, will you just take this for me to go to the judge? Like, we'll, we'll call it even. I don't know how much of that money ever actually makes it to the judge, but I know that I continue on my journey fine, so I'm okay with it. But the message was for them, don't take money by force. Number two, or accuse anyone falsely. Don't take this authority that you have as a minister of God as one in authority, don't misuse it. Be truthful in your account of things. And the third thing is, and be content with your wages. And so part of this repentance, agreeing with God for the sin that they were in, these are some of the actions that were to follow. Next week, when the religious leaders are being challenged, one of the things John the Baptist is going to say to them is in verse, we're going back to Matthew chapter 3. In verse 8, when he's challenging these religious people, he says, therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so the idea is that repentance isn't necessarily like we change our thoughts, we confess something, but really there's some sort of proof in the pudding that, that, that repentance should lead to change. And we'll get more into this. But I know for me, as I came to Christ, and I began to be convicted about my sin, and I gave my life to Christ, it didn't mean that I was all cleaned up, and that I was all fixed up. I struggled in certain areas where I continually seemed to fail. Alcohol was a huge one for me. And I can't tell you how many times I I confessed and repented, but then later that day I was doing the same thing. But I would feel more and more guilty and, and ashamed for the life that I was living. And I do believe that as I confessed and repented that God began to do a work in me to where ultimately fruit of that repentance came out. And it wasn't overnight. It wasn't even over a year, but it was over like years but the seed of the Spirit had been planted in me. And as I lived with him, things would begin to change. And my relationship with God wasn't based on my works, and your relationship with God isn't based on your works. But our works do reflect what we believe. Our works can hinder our relationship with God. And so as I look at this first part of John the Baptist and relate it to us today, like the biggest question that I have for us is, for, for you to ponder is what potholes do you have in your life today, in your heart, that are hindering your relationship with God? Well, it could be that you've never given your life to Christ and you're not a Christian, and that's like pothole number one. But then as I've walked with Christ, Larry and I were talking earlier today, and I'm just like, wow, I'm mentioning Larry and I'm not even making fun of him. This is norm norm normally we're teasing each other. But sort of in the Christian life, there are there are times when when on the outside, I, I can make everything look okay. And I can I can look Christian and, and everything's going to get, but my heart is hardened. And, and that's a pothole. And, and when I'm in this hardened place, when you're there, it's hard to fix. And I don't know how we fix it other than 
Like to me, when I'm there is confessing it and saying, Lord, just take this from me. Then there's, then there's other times when we're in the valley when we so beat ourselves up with sin and Satan saying, you're never going to amount to anything. You remember this? You remember that abortion? You remember that DUI? Do you remember when you did this to that person? Do you remember when you did this? And the other end is where Satan so like breaks us down that we in our minds say, well, we're not even forgetting when Christ paid for all of your sins. And so it kind of ebbs and flows with the tide. And, and so it's hard for me. I can't just put out a blanket statement to all of us. But I would encourage each of us with our heads bowed as we pray, just sort of ask God to show you, Lord, what are things in my life that are, that are hindering my walk with you, hindering my relationship with you? I don't know about you guys, but I truly want to experience God and all that he has to offer in my life. And so, Father, we do thank you. We praise you, Lord, for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would, Lord, that you would help us to examine ourselves rightly. Father, we pray that you would, um, Lord, if we don't know you as Savior or we're not secure in our relationship with you, I pray, Lord, that you would bring us assurance in Christ to know that he paid it all, that we stand secure in him. Father, I pray for those of us who have known you, who have walked with you for a long time. Father, I pray that you would help us not to get calloused hearts, not to get religious hearts, that you would keep us humble before you. We thank you, Lord, that it's all because of Jesus for any change that's been in our life. I pray for those, Lord, who might be beating themselves up over their sins. Lord, that you would help them to see that it's not about your good works. Lord, it's about our relationship with you in Christ. We pray, Father, that you would bring about fruit in our life that is in accordance with repentance. We love you, we praise you, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.